Happy Halloween, and welcome to The M Files. You are listening to Valerie Anella Mayers, Patty Woodfinkel, and John Woodward, opening the cabinet of curiosities that is the museum world. On this edition of The M Files, we will be speaking with our friend and museum colleague, Eric Wimmer, artist, musician, and curator of collections at the Anderson Abruzzo International Balloon Museum. We were fortunate to see exhibits that Eric curated while he was in Casper, Wyoming, as curator of the Nicolaisen Art Museum and at the Wyoming Veterans Museum. And we're so pleased to reconnect with him now that he is living in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hi, Eric. Thanks for joining us today. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. It's good to hear all of you. My first question for you is the same question that we have for all of our guests. What is the strangest thing that has ever happened to you at a museum? This could be the museum you work at now, a museum you previously worked at, or even a museum you were a visitor at? Oh, well, you know, we've all had weird things happen over the years. I would say (laughs) just off the top of my head, the one I remember the most is the very first museum I ever worked at right out of grad school was the, the Molly Brown House in Denver, Colorado. She was on the Titanic and she was a famous survivor of the Titanic. And she had this beautiful home that is now a museum in Denver. And uh, it's notorious for being haunted. And so I would often, I started as a tour guide there and I, I would usually be the one that would have to close up after everybody was gone in the main area. And there was a little uh, maid's entrance in the back, a tiny little staircase that was so small so that you could put your elbows up to catch yourself if you were carrying a tray down the back. That's how it was designed. So it's this tiny yeah. little entrance. And I would have to go all the way up to the top to, to lock everything up. And I remember on several occasions uh, coming down that back staircase and feeling like there was always somebody stepping right behind me. And I was not alone because I didn't know this at the time. And I brought it up to a coworker. And that's when they started telling me about all these just long history of stories that have happened there, uh, seeing things, hearing things, smelling things. And so I thought that was pretty interesting because I didn't go in expecting that. It was something more that kind of creeped me out. And then when I brought it up, they they all kind of were like, hey, yeah, you've been initiated now. Welcome to the Molly Brown House. <laughs> I love the Molly Brown House Museum. That is an amazing museum. And I love that it's haunted, possibly. So that's a great story. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the last time I was at Molly Brown House was for uh, an MPMA uh, midwinter meeting. So uh, I'll, I'll think about it the next time I go down to the Mile High City. But, you know, Eric, I, I think we met briefly a couple of years ago when MPMA was in Albuquerque. But uh, I've seen your name on many of the early documents and files at, at my current institution. But please, uh, you know, take us... Take us uh, and give us a little bit of biography about yourself. Tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah it's a wonderful place where, where you're at. I I started at the Molly Brown House out of grad school in Denver. is where I was going, the University of Denver. And so I got a job there. And then I went over to the Kirkland Museum of Fine Art. And then I just, we wanted to to be closer to family. And my wife, who is an artist, her family lives in Casper, Wyoming, or did at the time. And we were expecting our first child. So we took the bold step of just relocating entirely. And a position had opened up for, honestly, the first real curator that the Veterans Museum in Casper was going to have, because prior to that, it was kind of a one-man show with some volunteers. So 
I, I interviewed and they brought me up there and I just absolutely loved it. I had uh, probably the best years I've had in museums was at that, at that place. Uh, there was another fellow, John Goss, who was the director at the time. And it was really just the two of us. And uh, we were you know, supporting each other and figuring out how to bring the museum to the next level. It was also a great crash course as an early, you know, in my young profession as a curator to be able to do a mm-hmm. little bit of everything, but to be able to fail in areas too, and know that I had the support of my director behind me. And so I, I credit that time as being invaluable because I was able to experiment and attend conferences and just learn without this fear of doing something wrong and really grow into my own and discover what I liked about museums and where I saw my future headed. And so I was there for about four years and uh, really enjoyed every moment of it. It was very hard to leave that place, but it was time for me to go and let somebody take over. And from there, I went over to um, the Nicolaisen Art Museum and I was the curator there uh, for, I think, about five years. One of those years, I was the co-interim director there. We had a lot of turnover there. And so we were able to keep it kind of stable, had a good time, got to meet a, a ton of amazing people, a lot of great artists from around the state and the region, and and learned again, just learned a whole lot about what I loved about museums, um, do's and don'ts that were personal interests. And then a time came where I had to uh, you know, leave Wyoming and I came down to New Mexico, and that's where I've been for the last few years. And when I came down here, I started at um, IAIA, which is the Institute of American Indian Arts, a college campus, as well as a museum of contemporary art. It's really incredible. And I was there for about a year and a half until this current position opened up at the Balloon Museum, which is a very unique institution. And I kind of felt like it was going back a little to my roots with the Veterans Museum, where it had a similar vibe, where the the dynamics were similar. And that's kind of what I was looking for, uh, coworkers that just were on the same level that I was of, of what it's like to be in a museum, what we get out of it, what's fun, you know, and just keeping it really professional, but also, you know, really supportive and lighthearted. So it's been a blast. I've been here now in this position for a short time, but I've been at the museum coming up on two years now here. Quick question about working at a balloon museum. How many times have you actually gone aloft in a balloon? Since working here, none. I did when I was, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when I was in high school, I got to go up on a balloon ride. And we just finished Balloon Fiesta, which is the, the biggest, you know, gathering of hot air balloons in, in the nation. And it is unlike anything I've ever experienced, if you've heard about it or read about it. And so mm-hmm. it was something we just finished uh, yesterday, you know, so that that oh, was wow. a pretty crazy, crazy couple weeks there. But yeah, I would like to go up. My coworker at Fiesta texted me um, the other day. I said, where are you at? And she said, I'm flying right over you right now. And I said, how'd you manage that? I'm like, what did I do that I didn't get to do that? So she got to go up in a balloon. It was pretty fun. That's awesome. So would you please share more about the Anderson Abruzzo International Balloon Museum? Yeah, it's it's a relatively young institution. You know, it hasn't been around a whole long time, but it's been in in theory, you know, wrapped up in different various forms and stuff, but it, it didn't get its current location that we know today until more recently. Uh, it's a quite a stunning facility. It's huge. It's uh, conceptually in the shape of kind of a giant balloon when you walk in. But it's nice. it's gorgeous. Uh, a lot of natural light comes in, which can be problematic from a collection standpoint. But 
it's got you know giant gondolas and and capsules that have crossed the Atlantic and the Pacific and it's a pretty unique institution. There's definitely nothing else like it that I've seen. And I think I'm kind of drawn to that. That's what really attracted me about the Veterans Museum. That's what attracted me about Kirkland was I like museums that don't just feel like another museum you've been in, but that are truly unique because that's where you can really find your own voice as a curator is Mm -hmm. being able to offer something that, you know, people have not seen before, you know, and so it's it's quite a, an amazing place. It's it's run by the city of Albuquerque, so it's it's a city institution. Uh, it's got its own foundation, and uh, it's just a really it's a, a very supportive place. We have a, a pretty small staff, but the staff is all uh, incredible with what they do. So we've got this very strong t- team like dynamic, and um, we're just always coming up with new ideas, how to improve it, how to grow it. You know, just take it to that next level. And um, I would definitely advise coming over for a visit because when you walk in it's one of those places that just has that immediate kind of wow just the way it's designed is you know these huge ceilings with these giant models of zeppelins and stuff flying through the sky and these big gondolas and it's pretty incredible it actually doesn't it's not just about hot air ballooning it's about all ballooning so it's about all manned flight in the air so really the first time uh, humans ever got to go and see the earth from the air was in a hot air balloon in this in the late 1700s and it it starts there and it goes all the way from early gas ballooning into more experimental ballooning with the military uh, uses in war and then it goes into more into the 60s and 70s is when we get into what we think of as recreational hot air ballooning and sport ballooning so it really tells a, a huge story about human flight you know, throughout the last couple hundred years. It's it's a pretty unique place. So what's the connection between Albuquerque and ballooning? I, I've heard of the Fiesta before, but you know, what's what's the connection there between the community and uh, and the balloons? Well, it's a couple different things. One is it just happens to be where some of the key creators and designers of some of those early hot air balloons lived or worked a lot. So by proxy they're just there already. But more importantly, it's that the altitude and the situation, the winds, the, the weather. Albuquerque has something that's very unique called the Albuquerque box, which means that if you were to, to go up into the sky on a perfect day in a hot air balloon at the right altitude, you could go one direction. You drop your altitude, you go another, so forth and so on. And you could actually land right back where you started. So you could just take a really beautiful flight and go right back where you started because Albuquerque has a strange design to it. And so that attracted a lot of of balloonists. But then really what happened was um, a few people decided to create the the balloon fiesta and it grew. It just kept growing every year, just more and more and more. And now it's become the largest event. So it's just been an organic thing that happens. It's really unique when you live in Albuquerque, you don't think about it, you know, Almost every weekend, there's just balloons in the sky. There always is. That's just the culture here is balloons everywhere. And we don't really <laughs> we don't really give it a second thought. But when you have people visit, uh, they're always amazed to see hot air balloons flying around. But that's just that's just everyday that's life awesome. here. Yeah. yeah. Albuquerque just is such an amazing city. It just is is so unique in so many ways. And I think we're all familiar with those iconic photographs of the balloons rising up over, you know, the, the surrounding landscape. Um, I, 
as someone that's living in Casper right now, we do have a, a tiny little balloon gathering compared to Albuquerque, at least. Um, and I'm still amazed to see the balloons in the sky every, every morning. I can't imagine, you know, waking up and seeing dozens of balloons across the landscape. That would be magical, really and truly. Mm-hmm. It's magical until you hear the, the burners go off on <laughs> one of those things above your house at like <laughs> six in the morning when you're trying to get back to sleep. We, this is true. That has happened to me. <laughs> we, I grew up in Riverton, Wyoming, and we have a small balloon rally there every summer. So I was, you know, we have balloon glows at night. We have the We've had some guest speakers come through at different times, but yeah, there's nothing that beats that 6 a.m. that you can see, you just hear the burners going off and you're like, yep, I really want to get to sleep right now. <laughs> yeah, that's how that culture is. They get up bright and early to, to go do all that. That they do. So now thank you for telling us about yourself and the museum. Sounds fascinating. I really want to visit now. Um, but we're going to move into the roundtable discussion, and we wanted to talk to someone about El Dia de los Muertos, someone who lives in an area that the culture really supports celebrating that holiday. Um, living up here in Wyoming, we do not have a large Hispanic uh, community, but we are interested and excited to talk to you about, about the holiday and how it's celebrated where you're at now. Yeah, it's been interesting. We're very excited to be able to experience it more as adults, too, because unfortunately, since we've moved here, it's just been a situation with with quarantine and COVID and stuff that we haven't been able to celebrate all that since moving here. So this will be hopefully our first year of really getting to see it in its full form up in Albuquerque. But I grew up with it. I was originally from New Mexico, so I was raised here and then left when I went to college. And it was just part of what I knew during this time of year. It was just, I I didn't realize other people didn't celebrate it. It's just always been there because New Mexico is uh, largely Hispanic and that's just part of the culture. And so it wasn't until I moved away more north, you know, to Montana and Wyoming that I, I noticed that it wasn't happening. It was, there was a lack of it, which makes sense considering the, you know, the location, but at the same time, it was kind of uh, sad to not see it because that's that's part of the season for me growing up is, is seeing everything that goes with it, the, the colors and the sounds and the costumes and everything else, the celebration in general, the parades, there's these huge parades, you know, and everything. So when we got to Wyoming, my wife and I had t- talked about that a lot, you know, is it, it's strange that it's not celebrated here. Maybe we could do something about that. And so I don't remember when mm-hmm. it was a few years after being at the Nick that uh, my wife and another friend got together and, and started reaching out to local uh, groups in the community. I know the Spanish club was involved and uh, a dance organization was involved and trying to put on some sort of event uh, just to bring some awareness that uh, there are celebrations around, you know, the country that maybe aren't being celebrated here that are really amazing. And we wanted people to be able to have a better awareness of things outside of of their box, you know, because they get stuck in in their own little area and they, they kind of forget that there's other things happening. And, and uh, Day of the Dead is just so incredible. And so we tried to do a little bit of that, but, you know, it was a, a fine dance, too, because it's it's out of it's a fish out of water, you know, up there in, in Casper. Mm-hmm. So you want to do it, but you need to be respectful and let the people who really know what they're doing take over from there. And so that's kind of where we just 
conceptualized it and then tried to hand it over to more people who had real experience with it and could handle it um, appropriately. It's pretty exciting that it's a tradition that not only occurs in Mexico, but you see it in cultures globally, this honoring of people who have passed and remembering them. And it's really a way to be in touch with our humanity and our existence. And it's, it's such a beautiful way to experience that, like you said, with all of the sights, the smell of the flowers, or um, you know, it's just, it's really potent. And I think it's, it's really an amazing tradition. Yeah, and it brings communities together, too. That was the nice part, too, is it brings together music and dance and art and uh, poetry, you know, all kinds of things. Uh, it's it's really just this meshing of of all kinds of people coming together to, to celebrate common themes. And that's that's what I thought was really nice and, and could give people uh, maybe just a little introduction to it originally. Because down here in New Mexico, that's just... It's huge. This is just part of, of what we do down here. But up there, even if, if um, there's not really a reason per se to be celebrating it in the same way, that doesn't mean that people you know, shouldn't be aware of it. And there's processions there and uh, some of the other um, elements that we think of traditionally, the papel picado, the cut paper uh-huh. banners and uh, decorating the foods, yep. the bread that's baked, and the sugar skulls that are decorated. Yeah, the luminaries that like they, they line the streets. Mm-hmm. These little paper bags with the candles in them. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. it's beautiful. It's really stunning to see. And I, I as a parent, appreciated that you guys, that you, your wife and her co-host, had worked together to bring that to Casper because that's something that I was. You know, I'm always interested in introducing the kids to different cultures and different ways to do things and different ways to see things. And it was much easier to introduce them to that tradition through the museum and going to this this activity or this open opening that they had at the museum. And they could ask questions of people who know far more about the traditions and, and the representation than I do. I would be afraid that I would, you know, botch it watch it up and give them the wrong answer. So I appreciated that opportunity to broaden their horizons as well as my own. Yeah. And museums typically try and be those leaders in, in cultural exchange and awareness, you know, so a museum seems like an appropriate place to, to house or, or put on an event of that sort. And I think that that's, um, what was inviting is it made people come in with the idea of maybe seeing a little bit of art. You know, we invited artists from local artists to, to participate, but then once they got in, they got to to smell the food and see the dancing and hear the poetry and mm-hmm. all that. And that's where it started to really make more sense and come to life. Granted, it was on a very small scale as an experiment to just be an introduction, but I still think it was a start. Mm-hmm. So Eric, a question, and this is, this is where we're getting a little more heavy into the discussion. You've mentioned the celebrations here in Casper and the introduction as as a cultural introduction, as a informing uh, people about a different cultural practice. But when does the a line get crossed when it's it stops being an introduction to a cultural practice and then becomes maybe more cultural appropriation, where people who are you know not raised in a particular culture begin to adopt those practices without fully understanding the motives and the the history behind them. Where, where, where does that line lay? 
I think it's um, well, I mean, if it's already inherent to your to your town, then that's one thing. But if you're trying to start something from scratch, that's where mm-hmm. you have to be careful. And I think that's where it comes down to uh, leadership and the people that you're bringing in to oversee certain areas. It's one thing to have, you know, my wife and her friend, Sarah, who are both not Hispanic to give the idea of it, but for them to take it on as though they know what they're talking about and doing it would be inappropriate. So that's where they started partnering with people like the Spanish club and local groups and organizations that do practice that regularly. The idea or the intent was not to have the museum be the ones that are saying, this is what it is and this is how you celebrate it, but more saying, let's host it and then let the culture who actually celebrates it, take it from here and grow it. And I think that what we're, what we were hoping would happen would be that it would bring people out that have been wanting to celebrate it, but didn't know how to really start it. And they could take it from mm-hmm. the museum and, and then adopt it to their own and really uh, have that culture take on their, you know, their own holiday without the museum there. It was more just to kind of get the conversation started. I you know, obviously that didn't really happen, but that was the intent it was never for for us to kind of, like you said, appropriate it and then be like, we know what we're talking about, even though we don't. It was more saying mm-hmm. we recognize the importance of it. And even though it's not currently being celebrated, doesn't mean that you can't, you know, let's get this conversation started. That That is a great explanation of of the the role that museums should play in, in these situations. Yeah, being a facilitator Mm -hmm. for understanding, bringing community together, Mm -hmm. and allowing the voices to be heard. Yep, exactly. So could you tell us a little bit more about um, growing up in New Mexico and the different uh, levels and the different, not levels, different kinds of celebrations that you witnessed there? I mean, as I said, you know, I'm, well, I grew up in Texas, but we don't, nowhere that I was celebrated the holiday. So I would be interested to hear just a little bit more detail about what it was like growing up. It was very diverse. And I think that's something that I missed when I moved more north is it's diverse in its own in other ways. But I think culturally, Mm -hmm. I took for granted when I was being raised in New Mexico that uh, it's really there are large populations of like I had Hispanic, um, indigenous cultures, uh, you know, that's all here mixed in with Anglo cultures, too. So you have everybody kind of mixing and matching, but also then having their own unique voice and identity and celebrating their own traditions and holidays and stuff like that. So it was it was something that you just grow up with. Like I said, you have Day of the Dead or you have feast days or something that you can go witness as an outsider at Pueblos. You know, you can be invited to that. That's just common. And Mm -hmm. uh, it was just always it it felt so dynamic and exciting, you know, because you would meet people. I would go over to my friends' homes and meet their parents and they would have things that they celebrated that I never knew about, but it's just how you learned about it because everybody was there going to school together. You know, there wasn't sort of separations or anything like that. Um, And I guess I underestimated how really important that was to to have an awareness Mm -hmm. of other cultures until you move away and then you, you realize you don't really have it as much and you start to long for it again. And so it's been nice coming back here and and getting to see these things. You talk about um, appropriation or or being you know part of something that you're really not. That's another thing is being mindful that just because I live in a culture that celebrates a lot of different holidays or different traditions, um, that doesn't mean that I'm part of it. It just means that I can appreciate 
the the cultures who are celebrating it. And I think that that's wonderful to see it firsthand. You know, you can go downtown and witness some event that maybe you're not part of or were invited to, but you can still witness it and appreciate that people are active and excited, um, you know, and passionate about where they come from. Well said. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that wraps up this edition of the M Files. We'd like to thank Eric for joining us for uh, this insightful episode talking about uh, the Day of the Dead and his experiences uh, different museums across the Rocky Mountain region. Just a quick note, our next episode of the M Files will be dropping November 12th. But in the meantime, we'd like to keep the conversation going. So please follow us on our Facebook page. If you have a question, shoot us an email at themfilespodcast at gmail.com, and we'll see you next time somewhere in the Cabinet of Curiosities.